Will you please pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for the gift of your holy word that you've given to each one of us here, your followers. Lord, this morning as we, uh, as we examine your word, I ask that you would apply it to each and every individual person here, that it would convict where you want them to be convicted, that it would bless where you want them to be blessed, and give words of hope where people need to hear words of hope. We pray this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Again, my name is Doug Moss. I'm the small group director here at St. John, as well as uh, I'm at the seminary here in town. Just moved here about nine months ago uh, to go uh, to the seminary. I'll talk a little more about that. Uh, but if you've been here at all this spring and summer, you know that we at St. John are talking about blessing uh, and, and what it means as followers of God to be blessed and how God wants us to use our blessings uh, for the sake of others. Um, and we've talked about stewardship and those kinds of things in previous weeks, but today I really want to uh, kind of anchor us, point us the way God wants us to be pointed, uh, in that God has been very consistent as far as who he champions and what his causes are. Uh, we're not going to go into them in detail this morning, but I want to just uh, give you this reference, these three verses. Uh, this is an Old Testament verse, a New Testament verse, and a gospel verse. I mean, basically, it spans the breadth of the Bible. Uh, and if you're the kind of person who takes notes or does reflection, I'd encourage you to jot these references down for later. Uh, but I'm just going to tell you, overarchingly, they say the same thing, which is this, that our God is a God for, for the disenfranchised for the poor among us, for the least of these, for those who cannot take care of themselves. God's heart bleeds for this group of people. And sometimes people talk about the Christian God as if he kind of changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they think, oh, we don't like that Old Testament God. He was mean and grouchy and hated people and smited a lot, you know. But that New Testament God, when Jesus came, oh, now God, we love that guy. He's, he's really nice. And it's not actually accurate, and it's not what we believe, and it's not what we see if you actually study God's Word. That in fact, Old Testament to New Testament, uh, Jesus' uh, words themselves, God is very consistent that he has always been on the side of those who need a defender, of those who need a champion uh, and a God. So I, w- I want to start us there, that as we look at what what God calls us to do with our blessings. We know consistently throughout all of his word, he wants us to use them to bless those who most need it. So when I was assigned this week in the sermon rotation, I was given the title, Helping Without Hurting. And I understood the helping part, but the without hurting didn't necessarily make sense to me. Uh, I, I said, well, let's, that's great. Let's just talk about helping. That's what God wants us to do. That's, that's what we as Christians do. Let's help people. Uh, but as uh, I talked with our missions director here uh, at St. John, as I did some research and prepared for the message, uh, I, I really discovered uh, some pretty uh, harsh truths. Uh, as I looked in books like Toxic Charity and When Helping Hurts, uh, these books painted a picture of what the state of charity and poverty alleviation has been for the last few decades, and it's not good. For example, they talk about the money that has poured into the continent of Africa over the last 50 years. Uh, in 50 years, $1 trillion in aid, that's both public and private donations, uh, has been funneled into Africa. And yet, today, country by country, by every measure you can think of, if you look at the different countries in Africa, they are doing worse than they were doing 50 years ago. Their economic standards uh, levels are lower. Their uh, educational levels are lower. Their health levels are lower. They're actually in every way doing worse after they've received a trillion dollars in aid. 
We have the same problem here domestically, that we spend, our, our government spends a lot of money on welfare programs and social programs. We as a church have given lots of money uh, to, to the people, and yet what's happened is that we right now have about as low of an economic mobility as this country has ever had. Uh, whatever economic level you were born into, you are the most likely to stay in that you've ever been in this country. The things that we are doing are not making the kinds of difference that we would like to see them make. Uh, and this is all summed up in a particular quote from the book Toxic Charity. Many people legitimately fault the government for decades of failed social programs, and yet frequently we embrace similar forms of disempowering charity through our kind-hearted giving. And religiously motivated charity is often the most irresponsible. And I got to tell you, that broke my heart to read. When my wife and I came out here nine months ago, one of the things that we loved about this church was that we saw the generosity of the West County residents that are here at St. John. We got here just in time for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we saw the ways that this community gathered together to bless the people around us, the people in St. Louis, uh, and, and to read that quote and see that religious giving is sometimes the most irresponsible, that these kind-hearted intentions that are intended to help have, in fact, hurt was incredibly discouraging for me personally. It made me second guess all the giving I know that I've done over my last 20 years and and wondered, did I do right or did I do harm? And as I wrestled with this, uh, it it, it was funny because it showed that the Bible, for all that parts of it were written over 3,000 years ago, is as timely today as it was when it was first written. And so our passage this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you've got your Bible, please pull it open. Uh, flip over to De- open to Deuteronomy. It's the first five books uh, of your Bible. Uh, if you're here with us, we've got Bibles in the pew. Grab it out, and uh, you can see the page number where it is, or get your smartphone out and pull up the Bible. To give you context, this book of Deuteronomy is one of the first books of the Bible. It was written over 3,000 years ago. Uh, and this book was specifically a list of laws. All right, this is God saying, if you want to be my people, if you want to follow me, here's the rules, here's what it looks like to follow me. And so we're going to look at one specific law this morning, and it's from 17 through 22. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember, that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. All right, so as we wrestle with this text this morning, I want to draw your attention to two broad points that I see in it. Uh, The first point is that this text is telling us why we help the less fortunate, that there's a motivation to what we do, and we're going to get into that. And then secondly, this text is telling us how we should help the less fortunate. And as we wrestle with modern-day problems, as we attempt to do poverty alleviation, as we attempt to do charity work, we're going to see that this how really does matter for us today. So let's start with the why. 
remember that you were slaves in Egypt. They repeated that phrase twice in this section. And in fact, if you read throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy, you're going to see that it's about 10 or 12 times that this phrase is repeated. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Now, to give you the historical background, this is just history. You see, the Israelites had for 400 years been the working class, the the downtrodden in Egypt. Uh, And God had miraculously, through the ten plagues, most of us have heard those stories, had rescued them from it. But it's important to realize this. The Israelites did not win a rebellion against Pharaoh. The Israelites didn't unionize. They didn't didn't gather up all their weapons and fight a battle. They did nothing. God miraculously intervened. God saved them from their abject condition of poverty, and God brought them out of Egypt. And at the point that he is giving them this law here in Deuteronomy, they are standing on one side of the Jordan River, and on the other side is the promised land that God has said for hundreds of years he's going to give them. And they can see it. They can see the future blessing that he has for them. And that's when he's saying, but this is what I need you to understand. These are my laws. And the first thing is remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And this matters to us today as 21st century followers of God who have been saved by Jesus Christ, this is true today. Not because we've been to Egypt, most of us probably haven't, but because each and every one of you sitting here, I myself, were at one point a slave to sin, death, and the devil. You were going to die, and there was nothing you could do about it. But through no effort of your own, God came in, and through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and conquering of death, he redeemed you from that condition of slavery. He saved you from this thing that you had no way to get out of. You were going to die. And God redeemed you from that. And so when we see this motivation that he gives to the Israelites, we need to connect it to our own motivation. That just as he rescued them from Egypt through no fault uh, or, or through no help of their own, he's rescued us from sin and death through nothing that we earned ourselves. And that's got to be the starting point for understanding the rest of this law. So from there, now let's talk more about the how. How we help the less fortunate. This is kind of a summary. Never do for the poor what they have or could have the capacity to do for themselves. Now think about what was described in Deuteronomy 24. It doesn't say gather up all your, all your extra food and then go bring it to the poor, deliver it to their doorstep. It just says leave it. It says wait for, you know, leave it there and then let the poor, the disenfranchised come and glean. Maybe they don't have the resources to own their own orchard. Maybe they don't have the money for their own vineyard, but they can come and they can work. And they can come gather the, leaning, the gleanings, the left-behind parts of your crop. And so in that way, see how we can summarize that, that we're not doing for them what they could do for themselves, but we're partnering with them and allowing them to have a part in, in getting some extra provision for themselves. Now, I know most of us here are not farmers, so I want to make sure that we, we put this law in context for today. This would be the equivalent uh, of going to, like, Apple Computer and saying, hey, Apple, every time that you load up your truck full of iPhones and a couple of boxes of iPhones fall off the truck, just leave them there. Maybe a poor person needs a phone. Can you imagine if they tried to sell that at their shareholders' meeting? And I want to draw your attention to how silly that sounds because this law, you know, we don't always have our filters on when we read Old Testament Bible. We just kind of take it at face value. But I want you to understand this law was ludicrous and still is today. See, a lot of the other laws in Deuteronomy, they make sense. You know, oh, we shouldn't kill people. All right, I get it. What, we can't steal either? Uh, okay, fine. That makes sense. You know, like we get these things at a basic level. But this law is 
antithetical to common sense. This law is reminding us of what we started this sermon talking about, which is that God's ultimate agenda is to use our blessings for the sake of the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And it's especially hard for us to grapple with today because we live in a society that values maximizing of profits. We live in a society where, where if, if there's even a down quarter, a company is in trouble. And if they're not doing everything they can for the shareholders, then a company is misaligned from its mission statement. It would be misaligned from God's mission statement for business. Because God's saying, whatever blessings I've given you, I want you to be responsible. I want you to run your business wisely. I want you to do your work responsibly, but not for this end goal of maximizing profit. For the goal of remembering that you are slaves in Egypt and there are people that need to be helped responsibly. So if this is our guiding star, that because we're slaves in Egypt, we need to help the poor in responsible ways, let's look at what's gone wrong and how we have violated Deuteronomy 24 uh, in recent decades with our charity help. And so the first thing to understand is this, that there are three phases of helping uh, people that are in worse circumstances than our own. Uh, the first is relief. Now, this is the immediate catastrophe. This is, there's been an earthquake, a tsunami, a flood, uh, wh- whatever it is, and, and the first few days, they just need straight help. They need relief. They need to flood in food and water and money and doctors and whatever we can do. But what's important to know is this stage should only be a few days at most. After a few days, you need to move to phase two, which is rehabilitation. This is now where the immediate crisis is over. We've stabilized, you know, to stop the bleeding. And now we're, we're working to rehabilitate the situation that was before. We're going to clear out rubble. We're going to rebuild houses. We're going to get the, the economy and the society back to, to functioning the way it was before the catastrophe. And this should only be a few days, a few weeks, at most a few months. After that, you need to move to phase three of development. This is where you partner together with people and you work to find ways for both the person who's needing the help and the person who's doing the help to restore right relationship with each other and with their God. This is probably 90% of the need around us. If we look at the, at the poor, the the, the the disenfranchised, the least of these, what they primarily need 90% of the time is development. Unfortunately, where do you think 90% of attention and resources tends to go? Relief. Because it's easy when you're trying to ask for help. It's easy to say, oh, they just need a well or they just need a mosquito net. They need just this quick thing, and and that's an easy thing to get people to understand and and sign off on, and people will donate to that. It's hard to say, we need to build relationships, and it might take 20 years, because we need to work together to develop better systems, better habits, better frames, all these things. This is hard. This is nebulous. This takes work. This sounds much easier. But the problem when you focus exclusively on relief, which is what has happened so much in our own uh, just current society, is something like what happened with Haiti. See, in Haiti, they had that big earthquake, earthquake in 2010. And I don't know about you, but when that happened, I mean, that was the first text donation I ever made. It was like, oh, you can just text Red Cross. Great. And I did. Haiti received $9 billion in aid from 2010 to today. And yet six years later, they are no better off uh, than they were before the earthquake. In fact, in a lot of ways, they're worse off than they were. Because what's happened is all of that money went to relief. 
And instead of going to helping local construction companies start to rebuild the houses, that didn't happen. And so instead, what you have now is six years later, there is still rubble that's never been cleared, buildings that have never been rebuilt, people that are still living in temporary housing that was only designed for a few months, and six years later, they're still living in it because these crucial steps never happened. And so we who are followers of God and want to use our blessings to help without hurting, we have to put our efforts primarily in development. There's time for each of these two, but this is the bulk of the need, and this is what's not getting addressed and why there are problems. And the only way that development is going to happen is through relationship. It's not something that can happen through a distant thing and just writing a single check and moving on. Development requires ongoing efforts to work with those who are the least of these and need our help. And the only way to do that responsibly is to understand this truth about relationship. So I want to break this down for you in a a way that's in keeping with this economic thing that we're talking about today. So when we talk about sin, we tend to talk about sin only as, oh, I did this thing wrong that God doesn't like, and that's what sin is. But there's another really important way to understand sin, which is this, that it's this broad thing that we find ourselves in that has resulted in broken relationships at every level. No matter where you look, relationships are broken because of sin. And if we understand that, we can help navigate and start to repair some of those relationships. So, for example, the first broken relationship uh, is with God. Now, again, I want to look at this through an economic lens primarily, since this is what we're talking about this morning. And if you were here last week, Pastor Hauer, uh, basically this was his sermon last week, that from an economic lens, we can often have a broken relationship with God because if we have too much money, uh, we, we don't think we need God anymore. In fact, we rely on our wealth. We rely on our material goods instead of relying on God. And if we have too little money, uh, then we don't trust God to take care of us because we don't think that he's done a good job. And, and we turn to, to stealing and, and other things as we saw in that verse from last week. And, and so you see that these poverties of relationship affect all of us in different ways. They don't just affect the poor. They don't just affect the wealthy. They affect us both, but we have to have eyes to see the different ways that they work. So I want to focus on the next three, since Pastor Howard did such a good job last week, and check out that streaming uh, if you have a chance from last week's sermon. The three I want to talk about are this. We have broken relationships with creation. This results in a poverty of stewardship, a poverty of, of understanding our sense of purpose in the world around us. And so on the poor side of the spectrum, that can mean laziness, Because you don't think what you do matters anyway. You don't think it's going to make a difference. You're not going to be able to get yourself out of the hole that you're in. And so it results uh, in laziness and a disengagement from creation around you. On the wealthy side, a poverty of of stewardship and purpose uh, results in uh, workaholic tendencies, uh, in sacrificing other relationships for the sake of material gain. A person who's got a broken relationship with creation can still be wealthy and yet have completely damaged relationships around them uh, in their purpose and what they're supposed to be doing for God's kingdom. Third, we have a broken relationship with others, which on the wealthy side can mean exploiting. Using uh, your, your business or, or your profit reason as a reason to, to exploit this around you. It doesn't matter whether uh, our, our lower level employees make as much as the, as the highest CEOs. It doesn't matter whether our practices are not sustainable uh, in the environments that we're in. Uh, and you actually damage the people that you should be working for. Or on the poor side, a, a poverty of relationship with others uh, is that you, you don't think that anyone is actually a brother or sister with you. You think that they're either a, a mark to be, to be hit up for money or someone to be uh, Uh, avoided because they're a threat, and you lose that side of it as well. And then the fourth one, you lose a relationship with self. You see, each and every one of us is a valued child of God, but if you have a poverty of self on the poor end, you can think that you're worthless. 
You can have zero self-esteem because you look around you and you don't think that you're doing anything that's worth anything and you can lose sight of the fact that you're a valued child of God. On the wealthy side, uh, that can break you because, oh, you know you're a loved child of God. In fact, you're the most loved child of God. If anything, uh, you you can even start to have a God complex because you look around at all the many blessings and and you lose sight of the fact that you are, at the end of the day, just as dependent on God uh, as, as other people. So I want to help us wrestle with these four things. So I'm going to give you three case studies real quick as we look at economics and poverty and, and help you try to filter through how they, how they match up. So let me give you the first one. Uh, if you know Dave Ramsey at all, he's a Christian financial expert. He runs a, a created Financial Peace University, which has been a great help for me and my wife and for many people here. We, we run it here at St. John. And, and he has one hard and fast rule uh, when you get towards the end of his financial peace, which is this. Never, ever, ever, ever... Lend money to family. Don't ever do it. Now that we've talked about this broken relationships and and we know that Dave Ramsey is a Christian man himself, what, what truth do you think he realizes when he makes that rule? What broken relationship happens when you lend money to family members? Breaks your relationship with others. Right? Because what had been a familial relationship, it's my my sibling, my child, my niece, or my nephew, now becomes a financial relationship. Instead of going over for Thanksgiving dinner because you're so excited to see your uncle, you dread Thanksgiving dinner because you know you owe your uncle money and you haven't been able to pay it back. And so what seems like a good-hearted thing, oh, I'm going to help my relative out, I'm going to lend them some money, becomes a thing that actually destroys your relationship with others. Give you another one. This one's a little more personal for me. Uh, As you know, uh, we just moved out here nine months ago. I started seminary back in the fall and the first thing they made me do was do a 10-week crash course in Greek. And I had to take this big Greek test. And as soon as I passed it, they said, congratulations, now you need to learn Hebrew. And I had to do 10-week crash course in Hebrew. And that was very uh, difficult and hard. But you know what the hardest thing was for me uh, of those two tests? Was actually writing a letter to my old home church back in Colorado asking them for money. I would rather take a Greek exam than have to say to someone else, ah, I've chosen a vocation that is not going to set me up well financially, and I need help. And so which relationship is broken? Creation. See, because there's a sense of purpose that we all have, that we are partners in stewarding God's kingdom. And I have this particular vocation, which is that God has called me to be a pastor, and so I'm going to do it. But I recognize full well that that is not going to be an economically uh, the best decision I could have made for myself. But there are other people that have gone into vocations that do mean that they are economically blessed. And they want to partner with God's kingdom just as much as I do. And when I have too much pride or self-sufficiency to ask for help, I'm denying them the chance to partner and have a relationship with God's creation as he intended them to do. All right, one more. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, my favorite thing was getting up early for Christmas. When I, if I were Christmas, I loved to get up early and see what presents I had under the tree. And now that I'm a grown-up, my favorite thing is to sleep in as late as the kids will let me sleep in and see them open the presents that I've provided for them. My wife and I, like this last year, we, we made a date of it. You know, like we, we went and we picked, we had a date where we went Christmas shopping for the kids and we picked out specific things that we knew would bless them and that would match their personalities and what they liked. And we love that and we valued that. But now picture if I've been laid off or I haven't been able to find a job for, for years and I don't have the money 
to buy presents for my kids this year. And what happens is, is so, some well-meaning people come by Christmas Eve and they knock on the door and they sing a Christmas carol and they dump these presents on us and, and then they move on to the next apartment or the next place. And I see these strangers doing the thing that I should have been able to do for my own kid and I can't. Which relationship is broken in that scenario? Self. Right? Because what was a well-meaning, well-intended gift made the providers of that family, the mother or the father, feel like they weren't doing the thing that God wired them to want to do. And on the other side, the people that were, were doing it can walk away feeling like they saved Christmas and walk away with a God complex in, instead of uh, the, the true relationship that needs to happen. This is all summarized in this really challenging quote uh, from When Helping Hurts. One of the biggest problems in many poverty alleviation efforts is that their design and implementation exacerbates the poverty of being of the economically rich, their God complexes, and the poverty of being of the economically poor, their feelings of inferiority and shame. And again, it just makes me go, why, why are we doing this? If it's just making things worse, why are we spending time, money, and resources in things that aren't helping? And so thankfully, I've seen two very good examples of what does help that can give us some principles for moving forward from here on out. The first is from the Bible. So if you've still got your Bibles open and you're in Deuteronomy, skip three books ahead to Ruth. Now, to give you the context for Ruth, this is uh, a little bit later in Israel's history, and Israel's not done real well at following God's laws. I mean, it's pretty much become a Game of Thrones situation where people are constantly killing other people and jockeying for for power and control, and people are doing whatever they want to do, and they're not following God's law. But there is one person, a, a beaming light of hope in this land named Boaz. And we pick up in Ruth chapter 2. So Ruth, the Moabite, and Naomi, these are two widows who cannot provide for themselves. Ruth says, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why uh, have I found favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. 
though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. In fact, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. From Ruth chapter 2. Now, based on what we've talked about with Deuteronomy 24 and this idea of not doing for the poor what they can do for themselves and this idea of, of not breaking our relationships with others in the, in, the, in the name of trying to help, do you see how Boaz did everything right? See, Ruth came in. It would have been very easy to brand her or label her as, a, as a, an immigrant who, who, who is just here looking for a handout. Because she could have stayed in Moab. She would have had family and resources and supports there. But instead she came here and, and it would have been easy to say, well, you know, why are you being a burden on our resources here in Israel? And instead, Boaz framed it positively. He got to know her. He found out about her personal situation. And he said, that is so honorable that you came with your mother-in-law. That you came to be in a land and to follow our God. And instead of using things about her to, to rebuke her or, or, or to, to brand her or label her negatively, he used it to find ways to give her honor. He got to know her. And then once he got to know her, he made sure that she was taken care of. And you see how everything he did there repaired relationship. That he made sure that the workers weren't going to harass her or reprimand her, that they weren't going to take advantage of her. He, he was repairing relationships all around because he was willing to invest in her personally. And if you know the end of the story, he invested in her so personally that they ended up getting married. Are we willing to have that close of a relationship with the people we want to help? Not necessarily uh, marry them. One wife is more than enough for me. Um, but to actually be neighbors, friends. I've known people that, that fostered and, and were willing to eventually adopt because they actually were willing to enter into a relationship with these needy children and make them a permanent part of their family. Are we willing to do that? And in fact, I have a great example, a modern day one, of exactly that thing. See, when we came here, one of the, the cool things that my wife and I first saw was the, the Christmas drive. And we saw that this community banded together and, and brought 3,000 presents here. And as I've talked about, you can see how there are ways where that can be done in a way that breaks relationships and does damage to those we're trying to help, but not the way we try to do it here. See, when I talk with Jen Schultz and Karen Slimak, our two missions uh, staffers here at St. John, this is what they do. There should be a picture coming up. Yep. They have partnered with Brian Hill Elementary, a school that actually knows the kids and the families that are in poverty situations. And instead of us just kind of dropping gifts off and, and, and hoping that it blesses somebody, instead they have accountability and relationship with the people that we help. And it works out in two ways. See, the kids, they earn eagle bucks. That's the mascot of the school. And when they do things responsibly, when they're on time or they don't miss a day or they're respectful to their teacher, they get an eagle buck. And in the month of December, they open an eagle store and they fill the store with all of the gifts that you here collected. And they let the children come in with their eagle bucks and they've put kind of fake prices on these gifts, right? I mean, they've just said, you know, this is 20 eagle dollars, it's five eagle dollars. And these kids come in with their balance and they say, oh, what can I buy for my mom and dad for a present? And each kid, as you see in the picture, gets a personal shopper. We have so many volunteers come down. That's like something that wealthy people get, right? You go to, you know, you go to Gucci and you get a personal shopper for your designer dresses. And yet each one of these kids gets treated like a rich person. And this personal shopper walks through and talks about with them, oh, what do you think your mom would like? Or what would your dad like? Or one of your siblings? And they help them actually pick out presents and learn how to give things for others. 
And on the same side, the parents then also have accountability and responsibility to the school. The school has some requirements that parents have to meet. And when they do, the parent gets to come to the Eagle store and they get to shop and pick out presents for their own children. It's not just something that someone else dumped on them or or made them feel lesser than because they didn't do it. They got to take part in providing that present for their children. And yes, they didn't have to pay money for it uh, the way you or I might have to, but they still were able to partner with Brian Hill and with us and take advantage of the generosity of this church in a way that didn't hurt relationship but helped it. And so we see that, that it can be done right and it can be done in ways that build and repair relationship. But there's only one way that that works, and that's what brings us back to where I started this message this morning, which is that it's not just the how. We spent a lot of time in the last few minutes talking about the how and ways to do it responsibly with relationship, but we've got to get back to the why. Because if we forget this, if we lose this, anything we do is going to only make our God complexes worse and only make them feel more ashamed. But if we truly remember that we were slaves in Egypt, that gives us the motivation to come alongside and actually partner in true relationship, not lordly overseeing relationship. But this is very, very hard to remember. You remember in Deuteronomy, it said it over and over again, remember that you are slaves in Egypt. But I want to show you what happened a few years later. If we go to John chapter 8, Jesus is now on walking the earth, and he's talking to the Jews who believed him. These are good guys. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Sounds good, right? And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. Who are you to tell us that we need to be set free? And I hope you find that as galling as I do, because we just read it in Deuteronomy. We just saw it. They even have an annual celebration, Passover, that they celebrated every year, that the only purpose of it was to say, hey, remember that time when we were slaves in Egypt and God saved us. And if they can forget, if the very people who have a ceremony, who were physically in Egypt, if they can forget that truth, how careful do we need to be not to do the same thing? Because life is pretty good out here in West County. In West County, all the women are strong. All the men are good looking. And all the children are above average. Right? And when we have such obvious blessings around us, it can be so easy for us, just like those Jews, to forget that we ourselves were slaves to sin and death. And that while we may have been blessed financially, there are areas in our lives, other relationships that are broken because of sin, that we have relationships that are damaged, that we have not always walked as closely with God as we know he would want us to. And so when we try to partner with people, whether it's Brian Hill or anyone that we want to help, we can't do it from, uh, we help you because we're better off than you. Even though in one specific area, economically, we are. We don't do it because we're better off than you. We do it because we've been there. We do it because each and every one of us knows in one way or another what it's like to be broken. Knows what it's like to have a problem that is bigger than yourself. And if we remember that, then we can have true relationship because we're not lords uh, that are fixing someone else. We're friends, brothers and sisters that are saying, I have been there. How can I help? And then that relationship is repaired and built upon, and that is where true development, true change, and helping without hurting can happen. And it all started because God himself initiated that relationship with us long ago. 
And he asks us to never forget so that we can build those relationships with those who need us the most now. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word that holds true over thousands of years and across different countries and cultures. We thank you for the heart that you've shown us, that you want us to be champions for the least of these, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows. And Lord, we thank you that you have shown us the right way to do it through a relationship based on love and mutual respect because we know that we ourselves have been slaves to sin and death and that we have been there and know what it's like to feel and be broken. Lord, help us to be agents of change, people who rebuild and restore relationships through your powerful and holy name. Amen.